What have you got there, mate? Just a glass of wine. All right. How is it? It's all right, I guess. I mean, obviously, it's not really delicious, like a pint from Beer 52. Well, it's a good job that this episode of Podcast Secrets of the Pharaohs is sponsored by Beer 52, the world's number one beer club. With Beer 52, you'll receive a case of beer every month featuring craft beers from all over the world, including Belgium, California, New Zealand and more. As well as getting eight free beers, you'll also receive the award-winning magazine Ferment, as well as a couple of different snacks. Perfect for a night in, or an innocent picnic in the park. For the last time, it was a picnic. You couldn't see the snacks. We had two different types of snacks. Best of all, you can pause or cancel your membership at any time, so you don't need to worry about the ombudsman coming to get you if you want to take a break from your membership. So seriously, what are you waiting for? If you want to get started with a free case of beer, head to beer52.com forward slash peep to access your first case for free. Eight beers, Beer 52. Eight. That's insane. All you need to do is pay the £5.95 for postage. And don't worry if you're not a fan of dark beers, there is a light option available. So that's beer52.com forward slash peep to get your first Beer 52 case for free. Poor me. Poor me. Pour me another glass from Beer 52. Cheers. Cheers. Welcome to Podcast Secrets of the Pharaohs, a podcast all about the British sitcom Peep Show. My name's Tom Harrison and I'm joined by Rob Graham. Good afternoon, everybody. And this week we'll be discussing episode one of series one, Warring Factions. So just to set the scene a bit and give a brief synopsis of the episode. uh, Despite being bullied on the street by the local children, Mark competes with Jeremy to seduce their neighbour, Tony. Okay then, uh, so before we dive in, let's just have a quick overall view. Uh, What are your general thoughts on the episode, Rob? Having watched this back again, obviously I watched it first time around back in 2003. Watching it again, I'm not a massive fan of this episode. Um, It's a great introduction to the characters, but actually overall I think the plot's quite loose. Um, And as an opening episode of a series, I I, I can imagine it wouldn't hook that many people. Um, Although I did read fairly recently that it wasn't actually the first episode. It it wasn't designed to be the first episode. They filmed several episodes at the same time and then chose this one to be to sort of be their pilot to go out which is quite an interesting fact yeah that, that's interesting because i think that i really enjoyed the episode quite a lot um especially coming back to it for this and i think that it's a really good introduction to those two characters so it's interesting that this wasn't meant to initially be the first episode um but i definitely think it's an episode of two halves in that while the beginning is is great for introducing those two characters and we get some great insights into their behaviour, the second half, I think, sort of your point about the plot being weak, I definitely agree in that the scenes at Tony's party, maybe it's just that I don't like Tony particularly as a character, but I just think the second half is definitely weaker. I think ultimately it does quite a good job, aside from the introduction of Mark and Jez, it introduces the the concepts that run all the way through the pe- run run all the way through Peep Show. It has the the camera angles and it has the sort of the internal monologues that we hear obviously throughout the whole series, but though obviously we hear them in this episode. And the camera angles is quite an interesting sort of thing to look at. Um, because you it hits you as soon as you watch it. The first opening scene is that real close up view of um, Jez's bedroom and the the, um, the music system in Jez's room um, and that's a real close up shot and actually quite sort of disorientating when you first watch it um, and I think the camera angles definitely get better as they go as you go through the series um, it, it, they, they seem to become more steady um, as you go through yeah I think in the early days they used quite a lot of uh, head mounted cap, uh, cameras oh, so right. the, the cameras would be strapped to their heads um, and so you get a lot more um, sort of shudder. Um, and I know in later series they did quite a lot of over-the-shoulder camera, and that would be operated by someone, or they would have a, a, a proper camera set up where the actor would be, sort of like in front of where their face would be. OK, that's quite interesting. OK, so let's jump into it then. So our first scene is our introduction to Jeremy, like you just said, who's dancing around in his bedroom shirtless to a track of his own making. This is outrageous. <laughs> yeah, this is outrageous. <laughs> 
This is fucking wicked. I'm almost definitely a musical genius. This is outrageous. This is contagious. Yeah. Maybe a tattoo on my chest, but of my face. Yeah. Double me. Feel it. And I think this is a, a pretty perfect introduction to jazz, and you can sort of immediately tell that this is a guy who's a bit out there, a bit, bit weird, a bit wild, and sort of just marvelling in his self-perceived greatness um, and he even says to himself like, I'm almost certainly a musical genius but it's quite interesting that he says I'm almost certainly a musical genius and not I am a musical genius he's obviously got that slight apprehension maybe been knocked back in the music industry before we don't know at this point what his background in the music industry is whether he even has a, a background in the, in the music industry um, but there is a sort of vibe that he's maybe a little bit unsure that this is this is a great track. Yeah, it seems almost a bit of a, like a seed of doubt that's sort of in him, and whether that's something that's stemmed from living with Mark, who we sort of learn quite quickly isn't the biggest fan of that sort of music um, and doesn't perceive him as this gifted musician who just is one of the unlucky ones who hasn't been discovered yet. Yeah, yeah. So next, uh, we compare that to Mark's introduction, who's desperately trying to catch a bus believing that Sophie, who's the woman he fancies, is on board. Um, and it, it's a, a little bit stalkering that clearly he's learned her journey home and knows that this is the bus that she gets on. And I love how when he jumps onto the bus, we get this sort of, uh, this bit of internal monologue in which he, he sort of has a little celebration to himself, claiming, I am the lord of the bus, Becky. <laughs> And this is uh, something which becomes quite common with Mark, I think, through the series, and that he he quite often celebrates these small and so a lot of people would describe as like insignificant moments in his life, but it it makes him sort of feel heroic. But I think that's where the internal monologue comes in really, really handy because we all do that. We all have that sort of, like you said, celebrating something quite small, um, but in normal series that wouldn't necessarily have been something that's been highlighted, but because we have got this insight into Mark's thinking through these internal monologues, it really does help um, create that link between the character and, re and real life, because like I said, it's, it's something that everybody does. Even if you're not vocalising it, it's sort of a, come on, yes, get in, type thing, which is obviously what manifests itself in that, in that scene. Um, but he... But also... This sort of ways of looking at it is—is is, is he sort of quite low self-esteem? Um, is he not somebody that's celebrated by other people? And actually, this is a re really big deal for him. He likes having to celebrate his own achievements because nobody else is going to. Yes, he sort of has to make up for it himself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I love the use of the internal monologue on the show. Is that you—you kind of right that a lot of people do celebrate these sorts of things, but in other shows we we never have access to. The, those sorts of insights into his character and that we quite quickly talking about what makes this episode good is that yeah we get really quickly we get a great insight into both Mark and Jeremy and that's thanks to these internal monologues yeah and I think although Mark sort of is it's about the both of them being like both of them being friends I think Mark's quite a lonely character and they seem to have two quite polar opposite personalities and attitudes and mentalities um and Mark seems to have sort of one friend, Jeremy, obviously, and they don't seem to like each other's attitudes. Um, and Mark doesn't have somebody to sort of celebrate those sort of things and bounce sort of things off, other than Jeremy, and Jeremy doesn't really seem to care. Yeah. So, speaking of that celebration, so it's cut short, and there's a, a brief moment where he's really panicking until Sophie taps him on the shoulder, sort of, his, he, she's been behind him the whole time, and that she was actually trying to get his attention, but his headphones meant that she couldn't. Um, uh, so they go to sit down and we, this is where we get our first sort of cringe moment of the show where Mark uh, pats on the seat next to him sort of gesturing Sophie to sit down and she accidentally sits on his hand and I'm a big fan of uh, cringe humour and this is a great example of it it's sort of a typical uh, British comedy especially of that sort of time um, and Mark has this sort of attitude where because he hasn't immediately declared oh god you've sat on my hand Presumably because it's taken him by surprise, the whole situation. But by that point, it's already too late to say anything. Well, I anything. think, to be honest, like, if it's anything more than three seconds, 
after she's done it, it's too late to say anything after that point. Yeah. And that, yeah, so he... It, sort of, it renders him unable to sort of remedy the situation, and so he decides, turns out foolishly, to try and ride it out, and he even says that he'll try and get his hand out when there's a, a bump in the road. But again, this is where like, you can feel the angst in, in, his, yeah. in his attitude. Uh, yeah, and that is actually really good in making sure that the audience knows that actually Mark isn't a creep, because if that had just been silent, and his hand had just been under there and we'd seen that he hadn't taken it out and said anything, that would make Mark look like a really bad guy. Whereas the monologue is sort of going, oh God, oh God, oh God, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's just there digging himself a, a bigger and bigger hole, and obviously we all know it's going to blow up in his face, and quite quickly she realises that uh, she sat on his hand. But it's a really extreme example. As the, as the, the first sort of cringe humour that we see in the show... It's a really example, like a really extreme example. And, we, and like you've said, it's a very British sort of type of humour. And you see it in quite a lot of British shows. Shows like The Office is a really sort of a good example of that. And it's another, it's a good use of cringe humour, but in a, in a situation that a lot of people will have been in. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a sort of a typical British reserve. And that's sort of really highlighted in Sophie's response as well, and that Mark sort of makes a, an apology quite awkwardly, and her response is that, no, it's fine, which clearly it isn't fine at all. <laughs> Did uh, she put a book up in front of it? Yeah, so she decides to, to start reading her book and sort of just shuts off the conversation entirely, which leads to Mark thinking to himself, like, ugh. Great, she's given me the book off. Which is like the most typically like British response. To yeah. It. No, no fist fighting, no shouting. Just I'm going to put my cop, my my book up in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> so after I, what I imagine must be an incredibly awkward uh, journey home, um, so Mark jumps off his stop and he we see him having a drink and he's approached by a group of kids probably about 12 years yeah, old. 12, yeah, 12, 13. <laughs> and he's essentially bullied by them when they ask him for his drink and you can see immediately that he's shaken by the situation and he's, he's put on the back foot when really he should be, you know, he should take charge of that situation and be the authority figure as the adult. And I think this is a great example of, of how nervous and insular that, that he is and that his... His life is getting up, going to work, coming home, watching TV, and he doesn't. He clearly doesn't interact with people too much. He seems like the sort of person that will avoid interacting with with strangers wherever possible. And he doesn't really seem to step out of that bubble. So he's not he's not interacting with children on a daily basis. He he doesn't he doesn't have any family that we see at this point um, to, to sort of to interact with with younger children. Um, there are no children that appear to live in the block of flats that they live in, um, and so actually, this sort of this sort of interaction for him is oh, all these all these sort of children are quite are quite rough, quite scary, um, and he's an authority figure that doesn't quite know how to deal with them. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, so Mark's actually so afraid of them that he actually does offer up his drink to them, <laughs> and then before the kids then play on that and immediately call him out for, for being a paedophile in front of the, everyone else in the street. Um, so he then gets home and we see him setting down a book about the Battle of Stalingrad. As you said earlier, we get quite a lot of references to Stalingrad. And he's actually internally in his monologue comparing his situation to that of the Red Army. And he, although he's telling himself that it's silly to compare his plight to that of the Red Army... That is essentially what he's doing, and he's even <laughs> hinting that comparing that reading the book is uh, like a comparable struggle. And I think that's quite a—it's quite a, um, an ongoing line through the show, isn't it? He's obviously quite an intellectual bloke, um, and although he's not necessarily a particularly high achiever, he's obviously very, very book smart and very knowledgeable, um, and likes to drop in these sort of historical references. And in his internal monologue, he's quite dramatic. Like you said, although he's not actually he's not actually logically saying that what his plight is is similar to that of the Red Army, he is sort of he, he, he it's in his brain, so he has said it, um, and it really sort of highlights the insecurities that he has in himself, um, and these are the like sort of things that I think people do when we compare our plight to extreme circumstances, and the fact that he's got this internal monologue helps us to access that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, he seems quite... Um, because that's something that he's confident in, is his knowledge of Stalingrad. He it, it almost tries and links everything in his life 
back to it. Well, I sort of just presumed that it was a book, and it's probably a book that he's read about 50 times, but it's a book that he's obviously currently reading because there are a lot of references that he drops in throughout the show. It's a bit like when you've just started watching some sort of... Yeah, I was like, just... Oh, when I'm going to break him back? <laughs> when that happened? Yeah. Like, it's, it's, that, it's, that sort of, it's that sort of referencing, I think. Yeah. So then we get our first scene with the two of them actually together. So Jez walks in, sits down, and says... Whoa. I'm telling you, now I know how What's-His-Name felt when he'd finished the Mona Lisa. Knackered. And that's, like, for the Mona Lisa, which, I'll say for those of you who don't know, presume everyone knows, the Mona Lisa is probably the most famous painting in the world, and actually, if you can't even remember that it's Da Vinci. Um, and in my head, I had forgotten that he doesn't even say Da Vinci. It was only when I've just rewatched this episode that I've remembered that he doesn't say Da Vinci, that it's actually so stupid. Yeah. That he doesn't know. It's quite quite a good comparison between him and Mark where Mark is listing off these details of a, of a, a battle um, a well known battle but still listing off quite specific details of yeah. Sarah, and, and Jez can't even remember the, the person who painted the Mona Lisa yeah so then uh, they switch topics start discussing relationships and Jez mentions how he and Tony are quote sliding into a fuck buddy scenario and uh, what's interesting here is that Mark actually suggests that this is something that he wants for himself as well. And knowing, coming back to this and knowing th- th- his character as I do, this is actually really out of character for him. Yeah, and it, there's two ways of looking at it. There is the sort of you saying it's a really weird character, because this episode is effectively a character introduction for Mark and for Jez, but for Mark to, to give the impression that he wants that fuck buddy situation, I think it's it seems to more highlight that he doesn't know what he wants. Um, And although Jeremy is sort of laying it on the table and saying, you want somebody to go shopping with a Waitrose and that that sort of side, he's almost thinking, nah, nah, I'm in my mid-twenties, that's not what I should be doing. I should be looking for a quote-unquote fuck buddy. Like, it it seems, that internal monologue again being used to say, I'm sort of at that crossroads in my life where everything's telling me I should be settling down for somebody to... To read, to read the Financial Times with and yeah. to, to go to Waitrose with, but but Jeremy's still out sort of chasing girls and sliding into these situations with Tony. Yeah. I think he sort of doesn't quite know where his where his life's headed in that situation. But it's interesting that Jez, Jez clearly knows, it almost like he knows Mark better than Mark does, and that he does say that a bit well. Yeah, oh, he's not looking for that someone to go to Waitrose with, but we do know that really that is what Mark wants. Yeah, and I mean, this is our introduction to them as a, as I say, as a couple. It's <laughs> an introduction to them, their friendship. And it then, as soon as you think about it, you think, how did the two of them actually become friends? And I know we know they went to university together, but they've stayed friends. They're now in their mid to late 20s. They've stayed friends for a good five, six, seven years after they finish university, and they're still living together, they've not become sick of each other. Yeah, I, I see. I look at it as the so they did go. They went to the same university together, and I I get the impression that they were put together in halls, and whether the, perhaps they just didn't get on with anyone else, but they they seem to have just clung together. And even though they are clearly so different, they've just sort of clung together and sort of gone. Oh yeah, you're sort of you're a bit like me, is that they are sort of out of place together. And they sort of, I think they, they use that, that, that's what's brought them together. They sort of make one person, don't they? And they're sort of like, Mark, the fun side of Jeremy is everything that Mark probably wants an element of in his life. As much as he sort of tries to fight against it, I think he does want that element. And, and Jez just needs Mark for the security of, being able to pay the bills and knowing that he's going to have a meal in front of him at the end of the day. Yeah. He sort of has that element where he, they, they need each other for, for sanity, I think, to it. Yeah, so they, like you say, they, they do sort of make one functional person and they're, they're, they're this kind of dysfunctional team together. One moment that um, sort of stands out to me in this scene is when Jez is talking about Tony and how, because they live next door to each other, um, he can simply sort of dr- drill a hole in the wall to have sex with her, which then leads to him sort of saying, how thick is wool? Which I think is sort of a very classic Jeremy line. But it's the first example, real proper example, we see of him internalising something and this internal monologue happening. And then 
him thinking, right, this is a really good point that I've thought of in my head. I've got to, I've got to vocalise it. I've got to say it to Mark. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a typical um, Jeremy thing as well to just randomly come out with. And thinking whatever he's got is so great that's in his head. <laughs> yeah. He's then got to say it out loud yeah. afterwards. Uh, so the next day we see uh, Mark peeking out of the letterbox of their building and he's uh, he's watching the children who had confronted him uh, earlier in the episode and they're just messing about on their bikes. Um, he's desperate to go to the shop for uh, paper because he needs to go to the toilet um, but he's so afraid of those children that he's deciding to wait it out. Um, and there's a fantastic moment, uh, again using that internal monologue here, where he says something that you would you never really hear a character say out loud. Oh, this is horrific. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's something that other shows are, are really rarely able to do because they don't have this feature, the internal monologue. But in the safety of his own thoughts, he can get away with this, and he just quite darkly thinks... It'd be great if a car just ploughed into the lot of them. Twisted, broken bones. <laughs> and that's something really interesting. Watching it in 2018, you just think that's not something that gets dropped in, in, in British humour anymore. Like... In those sort of early 2000s, late 90s, 2000s shows like I'm Alan Partridge, like Peep Show, like The Office, they all had those sort of, could have quite twisted humour about them. And nowadays, you'd have people complaining that it was uh, insensitive because of terrorist attacks or because of of something something that had happened that they'd seen in the news. I don't think it's something necessarily that has translated well into... um, the, the more modern times. Yeah, yeah, I get you. So while he's peeking through the letterbox, Tony actually catches him off guard and walks through the other side. I have no idea how. If he's looking through the letterbox, surely he should see her actually approaching, but maybe it's just because he's... And also, if you open a door into somebody's face, I don't know how he doesn't get, like, break his nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what's interesting here as well, and it's a, a great insight into Mark's character, is how, like, how he tries to kick things off and... Um, try and seduce her uh, in, in that she complains when she enters that she can't get any Alpen from the shop yeah. and yeah. so he, he goes for this knight in shining armour routine um, and even though he's he's desperate for his poo um, he offers her his Alpen and surprisingly she accepts and I think, is that a bit weird I, I don't, we don't this is our first time that we've seen them together, but I don't know how much they, they know each other. But if, if Jez is at the stage where he is sliding into this situation with Tony, maybe he's spoken about Mark, maybe she's popped around to their flat before. I got the impression this isn't the first time that Mark has met Tony. Yeah. I get the impression that he probably knows her or knows enough of her um, that he would feel comfortable to do that. But I think Peep Show throughout it is all about creating these sort of quite awkward opportunities and, and, and being so desperate for something to happen. Like, like Mark is so desperate to get into a relationship with a relationship with somebody that he's going to go way out of what would normally be his comfort zone for, to sort of achieve. Yeah. That. So they go inside, and Tony sat there eating her Alpen. And, All uh, oh Alpen. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they get talking about family and things, and Tony happens to mention that she has a sister who has leukaemia. Um, and Mark's response is kind of surprised me quite a bit, in that he's quite an intelligent bloke, and he makes quite a big blunder here, this, saying that, oh, at least it's not cancer. But this, I think, is a really good example, going back to what you said about the cringe humour earlier on in the episode. It's designed to be really cringy, but it's really, like you said, it's strange that Mark is such a clever bloke and then sort of says, well, at least it's not cancer. It's fairly obvious. Everyone knows, sort of like children know, yeah. that leukemia is a form of cancer, which we totally then sort of responds with. Um, and so I think it's just a, a sort of a plot device to, to create that sort of cringe element, because there's no way that he's not going to know about it. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. Um, so then we get, speaking of awkward moments, we then get another one, and that in his sort of, his panic, uh, that he's made this blunder, he's, I think his panic leads into, how can I get out of this situation? And so he comes to the conclusion that he should just sell out his best friend, and he decides to play Jez's track, which we heard earlier, and together they both just laugh hysterically at it. And Jeremy arrives, and it was funny to know here is that he's actually practising his Grammy acceptance speech, <laughs> and he's sort of shouting out groups of people that... 
have maybe helped him get to the top, but clearly he's never met. This Grammy goes out to my homeboys in Compton, the Japanese people who mean so much to me. And he's initially excited when he hears the track being played and then walks in to find them laughing and he storms out and uh, is clearly upset about it. Uh, it seems such a poor move by, by Mark and I don't know whether sort of Jeremy makes too much out of it and I think I presume we're going to go on and talk about his response to what Mark does but it's, it's a real poor move my friend which he probably thinks is just a bit of a laugh and we don't know at this point in the episode in the series what their relationship is and whether they do have this sort of tit for tat I'll mess you up you mess me up type yeah type or whether this is something that is, goes way beyond the pale yeah, I think it's yeah, it's really harsh. Actually, really does sell him out just for a, a girl that they're both chasing. For somebody that yeah, we we it, we're presuming this is Mark's within the first fifteen minutes of Mark trying to sort of put the moves on. Like it's not like he's coming. He, he he's doing this as a a final move to be able to sort of actually get into what's going happen. Yeah, this is literally within 15 minutes it took the second or third thing he's thought of having to try and do um, and then speaking of this sort of tit for tat relationship between the two so our next scene cuts to what's presumably the next day and Jez walks into the kitchen clearly still upset with Mark and um, Mark's sort of attempt to resolve the situation is really quite classic characteristic of Mark's in that we learn throughout the show he's a pretty uptight bloke and he, he says that, oh, yeah, about that 30 quid you owe me, let's call it quits, yeah? But he does that after he's lift, listed off loads of other things that he's going to do. It's like, I've bought June on DVD, I've oh, done yeah. making chicken tikka masala. <laughs> it's like when you know you've upset your girlfriend and you're like, well, what can I do to try and make this better? I'm just going to th- I'm gonna buy some flowers, yeah. buy a bottle of wine. Yeah. Oh, let's watch a really crappy rom-com on <laughs> Yeah, yeah like, let's watch a notebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but he can't even bring himself, like, he's, yeah, he might have bought the DVD and he's making dinner and stuff, but about this 30 quid... Let's call it quits, yeah. Well, not call it quits, because clearly £30 is, is just that over the line. But again, it's, that sort of, it's an insight to Mark's character, but it's sort of that British reserve, and that sort of British of like, oh, we don't, we don't talk about money, we don't, we don't talk about money. <laughs> yeah, and money is clearly, well, they said that money is a topic of contention between yeah, the two yeah, of yeah. them. Um, so now they've sort of made amends. And well, they think they've made amends. Well, yeah, exactly, and clearly uh, he hasn't. Mark sort of makes the error in judgment in bringing the... It's weird, because he, he brings the topic of conversation back to, to Tony, and that is the thing he's done that's made Jez <laughs> upset, is to do with Tony, and he immediately starts talking about but Tony. But he doesn't necessarily say that it's for Tony, does he? He just says... Oh, do you know the name of that the doctor? Do you remember Cancer Kerry? Like he he Cancer <laughs> Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't specifically say it's for Tony. Uh, Although, yeah. Does Jeremy know that um, Tony's sister's got cancer at this point? I don't know. No. Yeah, that's a good point actually. Um, and so Jeremy seizes the opportunity to get one over on Mark here and sort of offering his help. Um, and I actually do have the full name here <laughs> in that he gives up the, the doctor's name and it's Dr. Ying Fu Yip Wang Shong. And it's at this point where Mark sort of realises, hang on a minute, there's something funny going on here. And then just just carries on. Pang, fang, wang, dang, dong, ning, po, <laughs> To which Mark replies, I know, uh, my favourite quote. I know, this is a big favourite one, so do you want to give it to us? He says, oh, I see, you were lampooning me. It was a simple lampooning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so our next, uh, next scene, we get our introduction to a new character, and that's Superhands, who is absolutely a favourite of mine, and I'm sure he's many other people's favourites as well. And he very much looks, as soon as you see him, you think you're going to be, uh, you sort of step right out of the 90s, you're sort of that oasis sort of ilk of dressing, he comes in with a big, even with a big white, uh, grey parka, doesn't he, with a big, yeah. big fluffy hood, um, to already talking about music and already sort of like a sort of stick it to the man type Yeah, attitude. definitely. Even, even before he opens his mouth, you you almost get a sense of what he's going to be like. And that he is very much the sort of the yin to Mark's yang. Like, or like he's, 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 so, he's such an opposite character for Jeremy to have befriended. Yeah. And so I like, so he rocks her, and the first thing they do is a secret handshake, <laughs> which is definitely something that sort of belongs 
way back away. <laughs> um, and he goes to the bar, orders his Guinness, but adds uh, no logo on the phone, please. And that's something that Jez sort of questions. It's like, oh, like no logo on the phone. And Hans's response is something that is so typical of Super Hans, and that's why I think this is a really great introduction. And uh, he's so consistent with this sort of sort of attitude going forward, and he's just like, "What you're doing there is you're you're drinking an advert, aren't you? Hey, shithead." <laughs> Which is just perfect, I think. And like I said, that is very much the sort of stick it to the man. We're different. We're alternative. We're going to make a success of our lives without following the mainstream. And yeah, he sort of talks about Mark, doesn't he? He sort of. I know Jeremy sort of talks about how Mark doesn't like the track. I know that's sort of what the conversation leads on to. He talks that Mark sort of ridiculed, ridiculed the track in front of Tony. Yeah, so yeah, so just sort of, yeah, he starts to express some doubts about it, and he mentions the fact that Mark and Tony found them listening to it. Um, and Hans then just goes on a bit of a rant about Mark, saying how the industry is full of suits like him, and they agree that that's why they haven't been signed yet. These sorts of delusions of grandeur that they both have, that of course it's, it's everyone else is the reason why we're not successful. And actually, yes, it's, we're trying to get into an industry that doesn't believe that we can get into that industry type Yeah. Um, but what was funny about this exchange, and something that I just sort of discovered um, listening back a bit more carefully, is that when Hans is ranting about Mark, he says, oh, how the industry is full of suits like him, clicking their fingers to the Lighthouse family. And what was brilliant is that I didn't realise is that back in the scene where Mark is running to get the bus to catch Sophie, he's actually listening to the Lighthouse family on his, on his uh, Walkman, I think. Um, which is a great little sort of, uh, like an Easter egg, like a throwback thing. And that was something that I hadn't noticed until I watched it back even, like, two or three times fairly recently. I'd only just noticed that. Yeah, like, I've watched this episode about more times than I care to admit, and I hadn't noticed it. But sort of the, the Lighthouse family are quite synonymous. I, I, I always think they're a sort of a band of my era, and I always think of them as sort of being quite a dreary sort of, like, what my uh, my housemate at uni used to refer to as bedwetting music, just sort of like <laughs> a bit a bit nothingy, a bit like nothing that you can really have a bit of a sort of a party to. Um, and um, Superhands also says something about Mark in an ocean colour pants, which obviously in reference to ocean colour scene, which is another sort of band of that of that era and that, that yeah. sort of same type of nothingy music. Yeah. So Hans is clearly really annoyed about what Mark's done here, sort of applying that seed of doubt in Jess's mind. Um, and he actually says to him that he broke a murder and that he needs to get some Rowenge on Mark. <laughs> um, and so Rowenge, I think we can pretty safely say that is getting like a translation. Revenge. Yeah, getting revenge. But I had no idea what a murder was, so I actually looked it up. And it turns out that it's an Italian word um, that's often used in relation to the mafia. And it's this sort of code of silence um, and that, what surprises me, actually, that it does fit the situation and that, yeah, Mark has sort of broken this uh, bro code. But that's such an unusual word. And the way that Superhands and Jez, Jez have been talking in this sort of opening gambit is such an unusual word for sort of uh, Superhands to use. But I wonder whether they're sort of the, the guys that have heard this word used in some sort of other context. They've heard it in maybe a film they've watched or they think, oh, I'm going to drop this word in and I'm going to sound really intelligent by saying yeah. the murder and Yeah, see, I think I um, almost thought of it like in Only Fools and Horses where Del Boy uses all those yeah, French yeah, words. Yeah. He's like, bonjour for goodbye and things. And I almost, I wouldn't have been surprised if if it had been like that and he'd got it completely wrong. So I was, I was pretty surprised and quite impressed by Hans that he actually, uh, actually he Hans, got it right. We, we learn as we go through Peep Show, we learn that he actually has quite a multicultural sort of list of lovers doesn't he so maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe he's sort of sort of a multilingual we don't know do we yeah so we cut back to Mark who's uh, we find him sort of in the middle of the train of thought about Tony and um, what sort of stood out to me both in terms of like comedy but a good insight into his character as well is that he, you catch him saying oh, you can have a, a relationship with someone who scares you look at me and dad and now, while that is definitely funny, it's also a little bit de bit depressing in that Mark is he's so desperate to find someone and, and sort of have that socially conventional life where you get married, have kids or whatever, that he seems to be willing to overlook his actual, like, who would suit him and his personal happiness. Yeah, and I think this is another interesting point where we talk about introductions throughout the whole episode. This drops in the link between him and his dad and obviously this sort of uh, 
sort of fear that he obviously has of his dad. Yeah, um, we get quite a lot of references to his dad, and we don't meet him for ages. I don't think it's about sort of a, sort of four or five series yeah. before we actually meet his dad, but he is very much a through running. Um, uh, thing within the episode that, uh, or within the series that he obviously has a, uh, a tempestuous relationship with his dad yeah so we get another point where Mark bumps into that same group of kids um, and he's he's still clearly upset about what happened before and he's so nervous about it as well and he starts to coach himself to try and reassure himself to get him through that situation yeah, of, a great use of the internal monologue yeah exactly <laughs> and it's just reassuring himself that he has, that he can walk past a group of children and he's just saying, you're not a pedo, you're just a normal person walking <laughs> past some children. Um, and then obviously he does walk past them and what I love is the kids opener and they just call him, oh, a clean shirt. Oh, did you get that shirt so clean? <laughs> yeah. And that, and that does, uh, Mark's immediately put on the back foot again, quite rightly. If someone came up to me and was like, all right, clean shirt, I'd be like, what the hell? Um, and so he's panicking and he's, he's thinking to himself, like, isn't that a good thing? Should my shirt be clean? <laughs> yeah. And I think... Um, but it's, again, it's like the, it's the sort of teenager thing of, I'm going to pick up on any sort of weak area that you've got. doesn't matter whether it's, oh, you've got a black T-shirt on today, and you say you had a blue T-shirt on, oh, a black T-shirt. <laughs> like, that sort of just, such a small thing, such a, oh, he's... His right ear is a bit bigger than his left ear. I'm yeah. going to hammer him for it. It's that sort of just trying to pick on somebody for any sort of thing they can. Yeah, I think as well, anything that's different between the two. Like, we see these kids, they're kind of... Um, you probably tell they're not from the, the best background. They seem a little bit sort of rough. They seem to be really. constantly hanging around the street. And I mean, yeah. In about ten minutes' time, we see them hanging around a shop corner about 11 o'clock at night. Like, when I'm not sure that necessarily they're, they're particularly well-brought-up kids. No, yeah, exactly. Um, and then Mark sort of trying to take a bit of control of the situation he sort of tries to reason with them um, talking about how I'm not the borough like are there no schemes that you can be getting on with and open just completely opens himself up to more ridicule for them the kids tell him to fuck off and he they actually start kicking him until he runs away in shame <laughs> Um, so defeated once more by the kids Mark returns home and simply just wants to go to bed he's had enough but his night is far from over, and then when he lifts up his duvet, he finds the word Judas <laughs> spelled out in like oh, raw. Oh, it looks like a bloodbath. <laughs> it does. Oh. It's just in raw butcher's meat. I think it's some sausages and a bit of bacon. And uh, he recoils, is sort of in horror, and uh, Jeremy sort of approaches from behind and just softly says, "What's the matter? I thought you liked pork." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so Mark, clearly uh, sort of shaken by it, he asks, like, what, what, what does it mean? And Jeremy just responds, it means a murder. It means rowing gay. And so I kept the impression, this is a bit of a uh, Peep Show's version of the, the horse's head in the bed from The Godfather. Oh, sort right. of moment, but an extremely budget That's version. Like, and it's such an unnecessary response. It's <laughs> yeah. quite sickening, really. <laughs> Uh, so naturally they start arguing mainly about Tony and uh, they also bring the incident with the song and Mark sort of retaliates talks about his music being terrible Jeremy sort of retorts again sort of he resorts to to like playground insults almost calling him a, a posh spaz and why? Because he's always doing posh, spazzy things like ironing his socks. <laughs> and I, I love as well that they have this argument and the thing that gets the biggest reaction from Mark is the fact that you iron your socks and he seems really genuinely offended by it. And he, that's the line that's been crossed and so he responds angrily like, I do not iron my socks. To which Jez just comes back, socks, shirt, whatever. But again, that goes back to like the difference in their characters and Mark being a... Um sort of quite an intellectual bloke whereas Jez is clearly sort of like I'm just going to throw insults out there one or, one or two of them might stick calling them a posh spaz and then, <laughs> yeah. and then sort of saying he just thinks I'll say enough mean things and you'll get offended by at least a couple of them yeah and I think he knows that he eventually if he says the right thing he will hook Mark in and even though Mark sort of is a bit like oh yeah I'm the smart one like 
Jeremy can bring him down to his level if he says the right thing. And I think they clearly have the relationship where they can basically say what they want to each other. Yeah. If, like, I think he goes on to say something about the size of his balls, doesn't he? So he makes a comment about... <laughs> yeah. Actually, there's no holes barred with sort of the, the insults that they can throw at each other. Yeah, so this, ask, this argument sort of then spills later on and we get into the scene where Mark's you know, eating his dinner and Jeremy walks in and he goes to, like, pinch some of his food and, and have some of his, uh, of his drink and, and Mark sort of snaps... <laughs> That's and, my bit of lager. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel you really get the sense that Jez, he really enjoys this argument. I feel like he, he's gone away a bit. They've had their sort of first argument, and he's thinking, ah, oh, like, how can I annoy him and sort of get, get back again? And it just creates even more that sort of element of them being like a married couple, where yeah. you know sometimes we've all had those moments with our partners where we've just sort of gone... I'm in a slightly irritating mood. I'm just going to see which buttons I can sort of press. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. At some point, I'm going to go and I'll say, I'll, I'll sort of pick up, pick up, pick up your drink when you when when you want. It. I'm going to just nick a bit of your, nick a bit of your pasta. At some point, Mark's going to snap and he's just prodding him and prodding him and prodding him. When he's like, "You're an animal, Corrigan!" Like you get your tie done up to eleven, <laughs> all this grey off his every slow spill out and drown you. Like he knows at some point. Mark's going to be going on like a rampage. Yeah, he just needs to yeah, to find that right button to press. And and Mark, sort of, he tries to get out and walk off, be the mature one. And Jez just sort of throws one last thing out there, one last swing to sort of see if he can light the fuse. And I, I don't know whether he knows that this is like a guaranteed hit, but he just comes out with, oh... And you've got weird knots. <laughs> and it works. Like, Mark turns around, sort of in horror once more, sort of perplexed as to how he knows this. Um, and it's obviously that Mark's really insecure about hence the reaction, and I know, like, later on, we, we sort of... It's quite a, an ongoing theme throughout yeah. the show. It's about the size of his balls. Um, but it really does hit the spot, and it's that sort of strange... Although they seem to be able to say anything to each other... As soon as you mention a, a physical insecurity that Mark obviously has, Mark's just like, whoosh! Yeah, straight, straight in. in. Yeah. And you can tell that he, he's really satisfied with, with Mark's reaction. He knows he's got him then. And so he completely sort of switches his tone and he's really then calm, like, satisfied himself. So, if you're going to watch the TV in your dressing gown, you might want to put some pants on. <laughs> um, so we then jump forward to the party, and Mark and Jez are just leaving to head next door, and there's the brief pause where now they decide, yeah, okay, we've had our fun, enough's enough, and we'll and make amends. I sort of wondered how they go about, like, making up with each other, because they're obviously best friends who live together. Is that sort of element where they, do, they just go and sit in their rooms for half an hour, sort, <laughs> yeah. of, sort of cool off, and then sort of go, we're, we're all right again now, because they can't hold on to grudges for very long. They're, they're in a, they're in a, they're in a um, platonic relationship with each other. They're, yeah. They're, they're, they, they can't hold on to these grudges. Yeah, there's a little bit of awkward tension out there, but you can tell that they've, they've probably been through this argument about a hundred times in, in some form or another, and so that they get over it. Um, so Tony then answers the door and enters her apartment. It's the guys! It's the guys. And a little bit of trivia here, which um, I found out recently, is that if you look closely, that you actually notice that Tony's flat is the same as Mark and Jez's. In terms of, it is the exact same sort of set used. And the, the production team have just simply redecorated it. Oh, in my head, when you open, she opens her door into the into her front room but obviously I've misremembered no so they, they quickly cut and they're then standing in the living ah, room okay. but if you look at how it how it's structured oh and yeah and if you then look later in the scene when there's a bit where they're coming they're in and out of the kitchen and in and out of the bedroom exactly you can see where they're coming down the corridor yeah. and things um, but they do a good job because I, I didn't notice it um so the, the competition for Tony sort of still ongoing, and we get another great example of Mark's inability to talk to to women, in that when she tells them that the people at the party aren't actually her friends, but she's just invited all the neighbours in the building round, his response is, "Oh yeah, well it's good to get to know your neighbours, and not just from a security standpoint." <laughs> and it's, it's just I find it hilarious that he thinks that this chat is even getting close to this sort of flirty back and forth that then they, they might then fall into each other's arms. It's like he's having a conversation with, like, the manager of the neighbourhood watch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rather than a girl he's trying to hit off. Yeah, and so quite predictably, she's not interested. She just pretty much ignores him straight off the bat. Yeah. Um, so Mark and Jez don't really seem to be having much luck um, getting anywhere with that, and Jez finds himself chatting to her sister, 
Um, someone who seems incredibly bored by until the moment she mentions that she works in the music industry, at which point he practically falls in love with her and starts running his routines. And at the party, there's this great side section running out as well. It's where they, they play this party game. I think oh, I, the Rizzler game. Yeah, everyone's played this at some point where they write a name down on a note, stick it on someone's head, and everyone has to guess the, who they are. And Jeremy, sort of a typical, like you say, immature humour, how they can get one on, over on each other. And he thinks it'll be a laugh and writes cockmuncher on his. And he quickly goes to place it on Mark's head thinking this will be a laugh, only for Tony to sort of force him to play the game properly, <laughs> put it in the bowl and someone at random is just going to have this horrific name. And when you see the dynamics, you briefly see it as they walk in, you see the dynamic and the demographic of the, the people that are in the room. It's quite an obvious, you, you, you see the old lady who is sort of an extra throughout the show. I think she, she appears in an episode in like series seven or eight or something. Um, as soon as you see him put that in the bowl, you think, I know full well who's getting this. Yeah, so <laughs> who's getting this on their head? Yeah, so naturally it's placed on there, the old woman. And uh, she actually later comes up to the, the two and asks if she's Jamie Oliver, to which uh, Jeremy just bluntly states to her, look, you're a cop muncher, OK? I'll tell you what, though, what's... I, I never got that. What clues has she had in the build-up to, to be able to decide whether she's Jamie Oliver yeah, or exactly. a cock muncher? Is there, there, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's some sort of similarity? Or whether that's a sort of slight dig by the writers that, uh, at Jamie Oliver? Yeah, yeah, because clearly she's been asking all these questions at resort to, uh, to, I think it is Jamie Oliver, which is quite funny. And then we get Mark and Tony, they're sort of partnered up, and we get a little bit where Mark's trying to get Tony to, to, to guess who she is. And that's because that's his one that he's put on, isn't it? And he says, this is mine, this is mine. And as soon as he says whose it is, she's like, I'm a Tim Henman. And I, I don't know whether that's meant to be a dig at Mark, or if that's meant to be a dig at Tim Henman, or what, what it is, but I think for people who maybe don't remember Tim Henman, or people who maybe aren't British who might be listening to this, who don't know who Tim, Tim Henman is... In, in his time, he was considered very boring, very sort of just like mundane, uh, sort of a, a middle-class man playing a middle-class sport, somebody who didn't really have any sort of personality. Yeah. Um, and even now when he's commentating on tennis, you think he hasn't got any personality. <laughs> um, but I think it's meant to be a sort of a, a, a link back to that when um, as soon as he says, it's mine... She goes, oh, it's Tim Hammond. Yeah, gets it in one. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So we go back to uh, Jez and Tony's sister, Paula, and he's going to take her back to his to listen to the absolute gem of the track, Outrageous. And when Mark hears that Tony refers to her at one point as, oh, I think she says something along the lines of, don't do anything I wouldn't do, sis. Which leaves you uh, like a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's where you get the impression of Tony from, is yeah. as her being slightly easy. Yeah. Is when she sort of... She's, she's quite a sexual person. Yeah, definitely. And when she says this, it sort of triggers in uh, in Mark's head that, oh, sister, like, cancer, the conversation they had earlier. And he actually goes to warn Jez. Um, and do you think... It seems if, like quite a noble thing to do, considering he's also trying to put the moves on um, Tony. Yeah, see, I wonder if Mark had been pursuing Paula whether he would have shared that knowledge or just let Jeremy and considering we've seen, <laughs> And we've seen how quickly Mark has just shoved Jeremy to one side and stitched him up with the play of the track and that sort of stuff, how quickly he's like sort of stitched him up there, that he's willing to not stitch him up and to give him that sort of... Yeah. Not, not let him have the sort of full flat on his face moment where he, he makes a faux pas about cancer to, to uh, Tony's sister. Yeah. So, having left um, with Paula, Mark now sort of thinks, oh, I've got a free run at Tony, and as the party begins to, to die down, he sort of starts to lay on his idea of, like, his sort of signature move, and obviously it's no surprise then that we get a lengthy spiel about, what do you think, the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, we get gems including, did you know the Red Army shot 16,000 of their own at Stalingrad? And, of course, the majority of the Wehrmacht had no winter clothing. <laughs> Uh, and he, he sort of creates this, uh, it's almost like a dramatic reading. He's trying to be all suave, isn't he, I think? Yeah, be the cool, mysterious intellectual. And he, he goes for this move where he tries to grab her hand, and it's another really cringy moment, and um, we can c 
clearly see, and again, this is enhanced by the use of the, the point of view camera angles, is that as the audience, we can really see that she she's is just getting not... more and more uncomfortable. Yeah, she's, she, she's like... not getting it. And as the story gets more sort of tense, he's like gripping her hand tighter <laughs> and tighter, and it gets to like a breaking point where she interrupts him and just completely knocks him back. But he then sort of... He just sort of carries on the story. It's almost like he's trying to like go, oh, right, okay, you're obviously not buying into this whole me trying to sort of flirt with your work. Flirt in the loosest possible sense of the word. But he sort of then sort of goes, oh, right, okay, I'm just, I'm giving, I'm finishing off my history lesson. Like, yeah, that, yeah, I wasn't trying on the moves, I was, I was just telling you about the Battle of Stars. so cringy. Because that's what people <laughs> do at, sto- uh, at parties, apparently. Yeah. Mark sort of realises it's been a bit of a mix-up, doesn't he? And yeah, um, and Tony tells him that Paula isn't the one who has cancer, and it's like her other sister instead, so the mix-up sort of comes out. And meanwhile, Jez, back in their flat, has been tiptoeing around the, the topic, um, sort of saying, th- dropping things like, oh, you know, it's amazing how brave you are. And she's obviously not picking up on it. And that go- it goes on for a really long time. Yeah, like, uncomfortably long. <laughs> yeah, like you go, right, she's not... At some point, she should have... She would have said, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, it shouldn't build up to the point where, like, he... She says something along the lines of, would you like it if I did have cancer? <laughs> and I'm just yeah. like, it should not get to that point. She should uh, like... Especially when, presumably, she knows that their other sister or half-sister has got cancer. So surely you go, oh, you've got me confused with, um, yeah. with my sister. No, so it all, yeah, it then all sort of comes out in the end. Um, but meanwhile, back with Mark and Tony, Mark makes what seems to be his millionth mistake of the night in there, where another person at the party, I think it's Barry, um, comes in and, and he tells them that, oh, we, we, you know, we've run out of drink and that someone will have to go to the offie and get some. And this is a, a great a little move here. It shows that how inexperienced Mark is in that Mark thinks, he sort of runs his little night in shining armour routine again, thinking, oh, this will look amazing for me. If I go and get the drink and bring it back, I'll save the party, and, and that makes me the coolest person. It's really here. funny, though, because because obviously in this scene, Barry is meant to be the alpha male, and it's meant to be him coming in and swooping in and ending up with Tony. But Mark almost seems to think that he's the one who's the alpha male, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go and get the wine, I'm, I'm going to go and save the day. Like, yeah. He doesn't pick up on the fact that he's been shoved out of the way so that Tony and Barry can get on with their evening. Yeah, he's almost thinking, like, ha, like, what an idiot, Barry, you're not going to, like, save the party, I will, but actually he's just fallen straight into Barry's yeah, you've, uh, his you've trap. Given, you've given me a complete go at um, be, being the hero here. Yeah. He he's, he's, he's so, so, sort of, so naive there. Yeah, so he just completely leaves leaves Barry to have a free run and sort of he then gets his alone time to crack on with and on his way who should he meet outside the shop he bumps <laughs> into the kids again and uh, so the same group they're hanging outside the entrance to the shop and it's got to the point now where he's so terrified that he approaches a stranger and asks them to buy the drink for him like he's some sort of like when you're 16 you're hanging outside and you ask someone to get you a couple of beers um but even that isn't enough. The kids spot him from across the road and they immediately start shouting out, oh, it's the pedo, it's the pedo, embarrassing him. And the stranger sort of gives him this funny look like, mm, not going to help out the pedo. <laughs> um, I sort of wish these kids had become a bit of a recurring theme throughout the show. We only really see them in this sort of first episode. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that could be quite funny, actually. Although I have an interesting, uh, another hidden Easter egg for you, uh, <coughs> relating back to this group of guys. Ooh, go on. Um, when, in a very much later series, um, when uh, Mark and Jez get their flat burgled, yeah. um, the guy who calls him clean shirt is one of the group of, is one of the gang by the door, not when, when, when they try to break in and they all turn up to no. rescue the guy, <laughs> he's one of the guys in that gang. Oh, amazing. He's also... Uh, one of the characters from the TV show Tracy Beaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, what a throwback. Okay, so um, Mark returns and he sort of finds out that, damn, he's fallen for the trap. Barry's getting pretty cosy with Tony on the sofa. And it's at that moment when Jeremy bursts in uh, with a Paula who's now hatless. So throughout the episode, we, she's had this hat on and it sort of gives the impression that she's, she's had chemo. Yeah, 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 she's had the chemo. Um, so she's now, we can see that she's actually got a really good head of hair and Jez bursts in and ruins things for Mark even more, accusing him of, uh, of ruining everything. 
Um, and it's weird, we have this, we were talking earlier about this sort of immature tit-for-tat thing, and actually this time it's Mark that sort he of... Calls, he sort of calls Jez out, doesn't he? Yeah, like he regresses and sort of resorts to the childish attitude, um, and in an attempt to sort of leverage a situation, he, he outs Jez for not having given the name of the acupuncturist. And Jez comes back with one of the worst sort of replies, <laughs> where he's just like... She's got leukaemia. Sticking a few needles in her face at 50 quid a pop is not going to fix that. Which is just like the, <laughs> the, sort of, the thing that Mark says earlier on in the episode when he talks about the car plough, plough sort of ploughing into the group of kids. Yeah. It's such a dark sort of humour. Um, where nowadays, sort of 15 years on from when it was originally televised, that, that probably sort of wouldn't go down as well with, with uh, the, the sort of millennial um, humour. But back in the day... I remember absolutely creasing at that because it's just such a, a cringe of cringe humour. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting that as well that that the um, the needle's not saving her, she's got leukaemia. Jez sort of shouts out loud at the top of his voice, whereas the thing with Mark earlier with the, the car... Was it internal? Children, yeah, it's his yeah. internal monologue, so he's safe in that, whereas Jez has just come right out and said, look, like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And then Barry steps in to sort of save the day, doesn't he? Like, he steps in and goes, all right, boys, I think it's about you time you two... Fuck not. Uh, yeah, and he clearly thinks, right, these two have just ruled themselves out of the game, like, I'm, I'm just going to get rid of them now. Well, it's just about him being the alpha male again, isn't it? And just, like, these two guys have come in, they've tried to, sort of, hit on uh, Tony and Paula, it's not worked, and, yeah, now it's time for them oh, to make sure leave. Yeah. I'll save the day. And he, he's probably had about, I don't know, 15 seconds of dialogue, and he's already, like, a far more, like, established alpha male, like you say. He t- takes control of the scene. And we don't see him again. Like, this is the only time we ever see him in the show. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, so, both of them defeated, and they go home. And our, our last scene of the episode uh, jumps to the ne- what we've seen this next day, and Mark is uh, coming home from another day of work, and he's getting off the bus, and it actually look, looks like he's had a, a pretty good conversation with Sophie, who must have just completely forgotten about the whole hand-sitting incident. Um, and so he jumps off, and he reflects on sort of what's happened over the episode the previous night, and you sort of think, ah, yeah, Sophie's the one, like, Sophie's the one who I should be going with. And he just goes, oh, Tony's Russia, vast, mysterious, unconquerable. Sophie's Poland, manageable. Won't put up too much of a fight. Back to that historical reference. Yeah, always back to sort of starting random World War II. Um, so seemingly happy with himself... He turns the corner only to once again we get a final meet. I swear this is like the sixth time or something they run into each other of those uh, troublesome kids. Uh, do they do they do anything? Oh, they shout they just shout that he's yeah, a pedo. Yeah, so they okay. shout pedo again, and this seems to be the, the breaking point for Mark. And so he just looks down, sees oh there's a steel pipe, grabs it and just charges it, uh-huh. screaming at the top of his voice. Like, this is broad daylight, and he's just running at some children with a weapon. And it's quite an interesting uh, sort of exercise that, obviously, we've seen all nine series of Peach, and we know what sort of character Mark develops into. But if you were watching this, having only ever watched this episode, to predict what you thought would happen to Mark as he moved through and what sort of character traits would develop as he went through, he's somebody that's, that's clearly sort of a, a bit of a fish out of water, but trying to sort of demonstrate that he's not and this sort of very aggressive person who you can very much get to snap and become quite aggressive i wonder whether as a as a first time watcher you would expect that sort of carry on throughout the show yeah yeah that's interesting um so then our final shot of the episode is actually one looking back at the bus and sophie who's looking out the window has actually just seen the whole thing and it, it, it it's weird that she's she seems to have forgotten about the sitting on the hand so that's the sort of Strike number one, almost. Yeah. Pretty big one. And then now she's seen him chasing some children with a metal pole. Which, and she's not seen the fact that they've been bullying him for the last, I don't know, few days. And it also happens in broad daylight. Like, it's, yeah. this is like a, after the end of their day of work. This, so this is like, what, five thirty, six o'clock in the evening. Like, there doesn't seem to be any repercussions for what Mark does. I know we're sort of jumping onto episode two, but at the beginning of the second episode, it's not like he's banged up behind bugs. He's <laughs> yeah. chasing kids with a metal pole. Yeah. 
Um, and that is uh, that's the end of it. And a little funny note is that when the credits are rolling, they're being played alongside Jeremy's song at the oh, start of the episode, which actually has a sort of a drop to the uh, the Jerusalem lyrics, a quite famous <laughs> British hymn, um, where he's sort of saying, "And did those feet in ancient times?" But well, obviously, it's over the top of the. Uh, the god-awful track that... Um, you mean incredible beat. <laughs> well, yeah, quite. Um, and that is the first episode. So, having just gone through it all, I thought I'd prepare a little quiz for Ooh, you. I do enjoy a good quiz. <clears throat> yeah, so I've got three questions about the episode, so feel free to play along at home, and Rob, you can give uh, your answer if you know it. So, number one, this is the easiest, is how many of their own men did the Red Army shoot at Stalingrad? I did say it earlier. As I was going to say, we referenced this earlier. We did. 16,000? Correct, yes. 16,000. And number two, who does Jeremy shout out in his Grammy acceptance speech? <sighs> he shouts out the, the Japanese. Yeah. And, and he shouts one. out... He, is it his boys in Compton? Or it so is. Something to do with people in Compton. It is the boys in Compton. Quite eclectic mix. The Japanese <laughs> yeah. The, the Compton well, boys. Jeremy's music touches so many people. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> um, and our final question is: When Jez is talking to Tony in her kitchen, what is he laughing at in an attempt to flirt oh. with her? He thinks, "Ah, oh, if I laugh at anything she says." Yeah, like he'll get somewhere. Classic flirting technique. He laughs at. It's a fridge magnet, isn't it? It is a fridge magnet. It's a fridge magnet. And it looks just like a fried egg! Yeah, fried yeah. egg, yeah. Yeah, it's a fried egg. Very good. Uh, well then, if you got any, if you got those at home, uh, next week, I think that should be your turn, Rob. You can oh, do episode, episode two. Episode two, the interview. <coughs> yes. So next week we'll be discussing episode two of series one, which is called, you're right, The Interview. So please join us for that. And if you could take a very quick moment to, to like the episode, subscribe to the channel, and if you could even stretch to leaving a review preferably five stars, that would be much appreciated. Uh, so thank you very much for listening, and uh, thank you very much for joining me, Rob. How do you get that shirt so clean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the next episode already, so we will see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.